brought to you by Penguin. Hello, I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and this is the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. Today, we're going to be chatting to four authors who are being published for the first time in 2022, from comic memoir to serious ornithology. We'll be finding out a bit more about the authors and their books. Look at it as a chance to fill up your reading list with some fascinating titles from brilliant new writers before anyone else hears about them. Now, first up, I spoke to CJ Hauser. His book, The Crane Wife, is going to be published in July. It's a memoir presented as a series of comic essays on everything from thinking about Florence Nightingale at a robot convention to officiating at a wedding. C.J. Hauser, it's lovely to see you. Thank you so much for having me. How excited, or perhaps I should ask, what is the excitement to nervous ratio <laughs> about having your book coming out? <laughs> I, you know, there's there's a mix of both for sure. I'm mostly excited. This is my first time being published in the UK and I'm just so thrilled. But also I feel like I have been writing these quite personal essays, you know, at my desk by myself. And it's been all well and good to share my secrets at home. But all of a sudden they're going to be out there in the world and I'm looking forward, but a bit trepidatious. Let's get into the title, The Crane Wife. Explain that. Sure. So the title essay is The Crane Wife, which is a story about uh, a research trip I took to study the whooping crane in Texas. And I've been planning this trip for ages. I was so excited to sort of learn more about field ecology and sort of coastal ecosystems and birds because I was writing a novel that had to do with those things. So it was a research trip. And then I was I was at home and I was miserable and I called off a wedding. And then all of a sudden I had this research trip in the books and I was like, I am I still going to go look at the whooping crane? Is that what a person does uh, in this situation? And I thought about canceling the trip. And then I thought, you know what? I'm just going. So I wrote this essay about the experience of going on that trip, fresh off of having made this major life decision and the ways thinking about the whooping crane sort of helped me think about my own personal needs and dynamics in relationships. Like all creatives, whether they be stand-up comedians or singer-songwriters, is life always potentially an anecdote <laughs> that actually you see things in literary form that are happening to you? Do you know, I, there's this uh, Nora Ephron quote that I love, and I think it was the thing her mother used to say to her, the writer Nora Ephron, which is everything is copy. And sometimes when things were really, really bad, I think that's the occasion her mother took to tell her everything is copy as a way of being like, at least it'll make a good story. So in the sense that it's a, a conciliatory thing a person can tell themselves, yes, but I, I try to live my life in the moment. And I think that I seldom know that something's going to be a story while it's happening. It's usually when something returns to me again and again after the fact that I realize there's something here that I want to investigate. How long has it taken you to learn to live your life in the moment? Do you know, I think I am a person who has been nostalgic for her childhood since it was still happening. <laughs> I think even in the thing that I was being shoved out of as I grew older and I didn't want to leave them behind. I just wanted to, I wanted to play in the woods. I wanted to wear funny outfits. I wanted to, to play, truly to play. And I think 
part of that way of being is to live in the moment. And so I think it's a thing I felt myself losing but tried to hold on to forever. Calling off uh, a wedding, calling off something as momentous as that doesn't happen overnight. You don't just wake up one morning. It happens over a period of time. While it was happening emotionally to you, did you think that writing about it would help you? Can those things run simultaneously at all? Or is it just about how you're feeling? I know I'm not good at writing about things in the moment. Absolutely. I, I have trouble doing that. Um, I've never been a journaler. All of these writers I admire have these beautiful journals. I read their journals. I read their letters. But I, I've never been good at doing that in the moment. And it's something about getting a little distance and looking back. Maybe I only become interested in it after a minute. I think in the moment it feels just like my life and like my own petty problems. And I don't care very much about them. Well, I care about them in as much as I need to make decisions. But from a literary standpoint, I'm not that interested. But I think so much of this book is about storytelling. And it's about the ways in which we understand and sort of metabolize and mythologize our lives through storytelling. And I think I've told myself some pretty harmful stories as I look back on events that sort of have dictated my actions going forward. I think that's how I wound up almost getting married in the first place. And I think what I was interested in doing in this book was thinking about well, what are the things we turn into stories about our life when we look back and then base future decisions on and why? So I think that's part of why the distance is, is part of the recipe as well. Um, we asked you to bring an object with you, as we always do in the Penguin podcast. Now, are you actually sitting on the object? I <laughs> OK. Yes, I'm, I'm sitting in the object. It is a brown velvet armchair, kind of worse for the wear, that belonged to my grandfather. He was a journalist and he was a writer. He wrote a memoir, actually, as well, about his time working in news. And this was a chair that was in his office. And I remember being in his office growing up. And so often he was reading in it. And, and he would say he was at work and he was just reading in the chair. And, and I don't think he was just knocking off. I really think that that was part of the process of being a writer and a journalist for him was deep reading and quiet. Um, and then, of course, I'd come in as a little kid and interrupt him and sit in the chair with him and he'd read me a story. But I love that it's a chair that was meant for work. But part of that work was the pleasure of literature and the pleasure of books and other writers' voices as well. And it just it reminds me of him. I'm so fond of him. He's in the book quite a bit. Um, so the chair is the object I picked. What environment do you need, CJ, to write in? Oh, I do you know there's what I would ideally wish for. And then there's what is the real world. And I, I think it's really important to tell myself and I tell my student writers this all the time is that there is no one environment that a person needs for writing. All you need to do is claim time for yourself, whatever environment that happens in, and you can do it on break at work, or you can do that in like beautiful stolen hours in the morning. I often do that. I love to set my alarm for like 5.30, and now I'm gonna say it out loud and people will bother me and they'll know I'm awake, but no one bothers you at 5.30 in the morning. It's a beautiful time, and so, there are all sorts of things it would be nice to have in a writing environment, but the only thing you really need or I really need at the end of the day is to claim that time for yourself. It's been such a pleasure. This has gone so quickly. 
Before you go, would you like to recommend a book that's on your reading list at the moment? What's next to your bed before you go to sleep at night that you have to read a real page turner? Oh, so I'm a, I'm a teacher and so I'm looking forward to winter break. And so I have this stack of, of things that await me to sort of motivate me through the days. And so I have Claire Luchette's uh, Agatha of Little Neon and I have Jessamine Chan's The School for Good Mothers, which are both about sort of different kinds of female collectives or orders. And I'm really looking forward to reading both of those over the break. CJ, thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Thank you for truly that. Uh, thank you for such thoughtful questions. I'm going to be thinking about them like <laughs> later today and being like, what do I do? Is this why I think this way? <laughs> well, you, you know, you're such a fascinating human being. It would be remiss of me to ask you boring questions, wouldn't it? Oh, I appreciate that so much. And I think that this book is really kind of, I don't know, part of the deal is I always want to get right to the good stuff and I have little patience for small talk. So I appreciate that about you. <laughs> Dr. Maya Rose Craig is a British Bangladeshi ornithologist, environmentalist and activist. Her passion for birds has taken her all over the world from her family home in Bristol to every single continent and her debut book, Bird Girl, which is part memoir and part celebration of some amazingly rare and spectacular birds, will be published in June. Hello, Maya Rose. Hello. Hi. Good to see you. Good to see you. Tell us about how far back this goes, your fascination with birds. Yeah, um, I've always had quite a fun bird watching origin story in that there's a few birding exploits that are talked about that are happening while I'm in my mum's stomach and she's sort of going all over the country chasing after rare birds. So, you know, it's sort of this thing when people ask me, when did you start bird watching or why do you love birds so much? I find it really difficult to answer. In my house, we have this enormous, enormous bookshelf that's just full of books all about birds, nothing else, just birds. And on that bookshelf, there are loads of books just filled with these beautiful illustrations of birds from around the world. So I think, you know, it wasn't really magical stories in that way that my parents were telling me. Um, they would sit with me and look at these birds from all around the planet, all the different continents, and we would just talk about them. And we would look at them and I'd sort of say, oh, I wish I could go and see this. I wish I could go and see this. So it meant that for also from a really young age, I had a head just full of like I said, all these beautiful illustrations from around the world. And I just always knew that I wanted to go and see all of these amazing birds one day. So how did they pique the interest of a child? Um, yeah, that's a really fair question. I think when I was really young, it was never really posed as a question to me. It was never, do you want to come bird watching? Do you want to come and look at the birds? It was like, this is what we're doing this weekend. Um, because my parents both love birds. My older sister loved birds. And it probably wasn't until I was a bit older that I actually realised that other people don't love birds as much as we do. And so there was, there was no questioning it when I was really young. And by the time I was old enough to think about it myself, I'd already fallen head over heels for the natural world and birds in general. Um, but I do remember being a little bit older and asking my mum, like, oh, why do we have to be bird watchers? No one else is. It's really weird. And she sort of turned to me and she went, but Maya, if we weren't bird watchers, we'd just be a really boring family that didn't have anything to us. And I think that really stuck with me. And I thought about it a lot when I was younger. And I was like, actually, yeah, 
this is like the thing that holds us together and this is the thing that makes us really special as a family. I think in some ways that was really important in I sort of went through that period of feeling really self-conscious and I came out the other side much older being like actually no this is something I really love and I don't really care and the funny thing was that as soon as I stopped feeling self-conscious about it no one else at school cared at all so it was always me making it making it weird not anyone else and I think as soon as I realized that it was sort of this moment where I was like and relax um I can just I, I love it and I don't care and no one else cares either and that was quite um quite freeing I think for for a very self-conscious teenager. How does the study of bird species expand the wonder as opposed to take the wonder away as it becomes more scientific? Um, I feel like all my answers are so biased because I genuinely... It's, it's not just birds Of course as well. they're biased. <laughs> You've literally written a book called Bird Girl. No, don't apologise that I, th- I think like for me personally the whole birds thing is sort of 50 50 where it's a very just I guess almost aesthetic enjoyment of being able to look at birds on a very surface level and just think that is beautiful I'm really enjoying looking at it but I think having all of the layers underneath doing all the slightly more factual stuff is a way of bringing that into my life more what have we done as human beings to their environment I actually did a really interesting series quite recently um, talking about how birds can be sirens of change, sort of very much the canary in the coal mine type thing, about how birds are often impacted much more quickly by all the negative things we're doing to the planet than people, and how by studying birds, by looking at birds, we can see what we're eventually going to be doing to ourselves too. And so I think birds are really struggling our planet's really struggling and we really are running out of time like even in my lifetime I've seen various birds that have become critically endangered um, all because of human behavior human interference in various shapes and forms this is a species that would be thriving if it wasn't for us for those people who see essentially birds as the kind of lift music of nature. They're constantly there, but they're in the background. As soon as you begin to see them differently in the foreground, what changes? Something people talk about quite a lot is how once you're aware of the bird life in, in urban areas in particular, once you're aware that there is nature around you, even in very inner city areas, I I suppose it bridges that gap between people and nature where you think of it as being something very distant in the remote parts of the countryside. You realise that nature is everywhere. In um, Bird Girl, I spend quite a lot of time talking about mental health and just how important nature and birds can be for mental health. And I think if you do form a connection with nature in some shape or form, I think it's just really good for you and it's just really enjoyable. Like, you can talk about all the other stuff all you want, but it's just really enjoyable being out in the countryside or watching birds flying around or whatever it is. And, yeah, I think more people should do it. Now, we always ask our guests, Maya Rose, to bring an object with them that says something about them or their writing life. And you've chosen your old binoculars from childhood. When did you get them? 
I do. Um, I actually, I have them right here. And you can see that they're really small. And I got them when I was nine years old. Um, so I'd been birding all my life at that point. But I had quite sensibly, because I was a, a child, my parents had never given me a very fancy pair of binoculars. I'd been using a slightly, my sister's slightly plasticky old pair. But when I was nine, they told me that we were going on a very long birding trip to South America. We were going to South America for six months straight to go look at birds, which I obviously I was incredibly excited. And there's all these beautiful, very tropical birds living in the rainforest. And at that point, they decided that I had proved that I was going to stick with the hobby. I really was a bird watcher. I wasn't just doing it because they were making me. And because it was such a lot of bird watching in one go, they decided to buy me this small pair of binoculars. They're very nice. I love them. And they're also perfect for a nine or 10 year old. And I just, it was literally love at first sight. I loved these binoculars so much. But I think also they sort of signify that transition into when my parents really went, you know what, she loves birds. She is a bird watcher. This is something that she's doing in her own right. And yeah, they're just really special to me. And I still, I do still use them sometimes, even though they're not as good as my very big chunky ones that I use these days. But I just, yeah, I love them a lot. Maya Rose, it's been a huge pleasure talking to you. Before I let you go, here's a difficult question. If there is a book that has been an inspiration to you and you could identify one book, what would it be? I mean, I've always really loved reading since I was a kid and there have been so many books that have been influential but I think something because I was rereading it actually recently for an essay I was writing for uni and um, I just remembered how brilliant it was and it was why I'm no longer talking to white people about race by Reniedo Lodge I read it quite a few years ago now when it first came out but rereading it I just realized it's absolutely bombastic and it is incredibly inspirational it made me do a lot of reflecting as a person incredibly educational and I think you know if there was one book that I had to recommend everyone in the UK at least to read it would be this book just because it is yeah absolutely brilliant and I love it and it's also very accessible very easy to read so would absolutely recommend. Thank you so much Maya Rose. Now Teresa Lim is the author of a beautiful, sweeping, intergenerational memoir that tells the story of her extended family from 19th century South China to modern-day Singapore. And I'm very happy to say that Teresa joins me now. Hi, Teresa. Hello, Ni Hao. Tell me about this photograph, the photograph that in many ways launched the idea for the interpreter's daughter. When my mother was about in her very early 80s, before dementia set in, she got out a photograph when I visited her and asked me to make copies of it. And that's the first time I really examined this photograph closely. And it was of a trip that she had made to Hong Kong when she was in her teens and with her great-grandfather. And it was really to kind of deliver him back from Singapore to Hong Kong and then China to die. And it was a, a, a fascinating photograph, but the person that really grabbed my interest was the young woman at the center of it, who was my mother's aunt, my great aunt. And uh, my mother always referred to her as Fanny. 
although her Chinese name was Mong um, Fun. In the writing of this book, which really started with my great-grandfather, Fanny was never the central character to begin with. She just grew into the central character as I realized that she was quite extraordinary. She had, as a young girl, probably 16 years old, decided she would never marry, but that wasn't enough. She swore an oath publicly never to marry so that she could not go back on it. And then at the age of 17, she kind of checked herself into um, an English primary school in Singapore to get herself an English education and, and then went on to university. And she did this because her eldest sister, my grandmother, had left her husband and taken the three young children with her. And that was considered extremely unlucky to take a married daughter back. Ultimately, it wasn't a good thing to have a married adult daughter around. That was the taboo, the kind of social taboo that the Chinese kind of um, built up over centuries to make sure that girls that you married off never came back because, you know, the economy just couldn't support married children that you dispatched coming back to you. Fanny decided I, she would do this so that she could find a job, be a professional woman, and support her sister and her sister's children. What was your family's attitude towards their own history? Was it one of openness or was it one of reticence to talk about it? Reticence, for sure. Reticence, definitely. They don't like talking about the past too much, generally. And they certainly don't like talking about the past if there's anything that's not wholly pleasant involved. What does a curious mind do when faced with a wall of silence? <laughs> well, you keep asking, you keep probing, you keep asking questions and the same answers come back. But um, I've learned over the years that, you know, you take down everything eventually, little unimportant bits of information seem to join up and then they, they come to mean something. But that's when writing this story, I felt almost that Fanny wanted her story to be told. What were the spaces that you had to fill where there wasn't the knowledge that you needed so your imagination had to do the work? I, I think a lot of emotions, you know, but also, um, in writing about my great-grandfather leaving China for the first time, I found that really I couldn't get to how it felt unless I tried to inhabit the character. And I had to then imagine myself as a you know, 16-year-old with a 13-year-old brother leaving home. You realise probably could be forever, you might never see your family again. And imagine how that felt. It was really hard, and I felt really exhausted by that. After I wrote that little section, I felt completely drained. Teresa, we always ask our guests to bring in an object that says something about their writing life. And considering who we've just been talking about, it would, of course, be something related to great Aunt Fanny. What is it? of hers that you have as your object? It is um, a watch that belonged to her. And I was trying to think just now, I've got it, got it here. It's tiny with the clasp and it, it can't, I haven't got a huge wrist, but it can't go around my wrist. And um, 
it's a gold watch, but, you know, probably 14 karat gold because it's a little bit tarnished. And I was trying to think how I got it. And I think that my, I, my mother, I was just going with my mother through some of her, her personal effects one day, including her jewellery. And I, I must have pulled this up and said, oh, that's, that's rather nice. And she said, well, it's my aunt's. And I said, oh, Fanny's. And, and you know, that's really interesting. And it's quite, it's quite pretty and everything. And, and then she said, well, have it. And I think back now, if I hadn't seen it that day, if I hadn't picked it out, she wasn't sentimental about her aunt, and she she certainly wasn't sentimental about anything that wasn't sort of obviously of of great value, I suppose. And she would have given it to just about anybody, or um, thrown it away, or you know, it might have you know after she died, if I'd gone through it with my cousins, someone might have taken it, but we wouldn't have known who it belonged to. And that would have been such a pity because the eye has become very important to me because, of course, Fanny has evolved to be central to the book that I have written. And she would have worn this every day. You can see it in the photograph, actually, that you brought up earlier. It's on her, her wrist. Um, it's very, very faint, but it's there. So she would have worn it next to her skin every day, probably. Indeed. Is there a book that inspires you? I'm putting you on the spot here because I'm sure there are several, but if you could pick one, what would it be? When I told a friend that I was attempting to write a, a book about my family, she said, well, then you must read The Hair with the Ember Eyes, which I hadn't read. And it opened my eyes to how a family memoir can feel personal and intimate and relevant. It's not just about your boring old family that nobody else is terribly interested in. To another friend, when I said I was writing about my great-grandfather to begin with, he said, oh, he must have been very famous. Well, he wasn't very famous. He was very ordinary, like many, many people are ordinary. But ordinary people have their stories too. And ordinary people's stories are as interesting or as important as extraordinary people's stories. But also in the book, there is a theme driving my book as well, and that is of the impact of the wider world on the personal. Teresa, thank you so much. Thank you, Nihal. Thank you very much. My next guest, Thomas Halliday, is an award-winning paleontologist who has written an extraordinary book, Other Lands, which gives a beautiful, detailed portrait of ecosystems which have long since become extinct. It's an up-close encounter with worlds that are normally unimaginably distant. Thomas, hi. Hello. What's the balance between science and imagination in this book? Uh, well, I mean, everything... This book is a way of sort of exploring the past and putting you as the reader, into these uh, ecosystems that used to exist. And so necessarily that means that it has to uh, involve some degree of uh, creativity to uh, understand what it would have been like to actually be in this place 444 million years ago or however long ago. But everything in the book is uh, absolutely grounded in scientific fact. Over the last Several decades, there have been huge advances in our ability to reconstruct the past of, of Earth's history. So whether that's 
you know, I mean, some of the most famous examples are that we now uh, understand what the colour of dinosaur feathers or, or you know, beetle shells are, or we can, in some cases, there, there's even you know a fossil of a cricket, for example, where the sound can be reconstructed from the existence of the the file and plectrum shape, so you can reconstruct the chirp. So you know, details that would have been thought impossible to reconstruct not long ago are getting ever closer, and uh, scientists uh, have sort of this wonderful ability to actually take the rock record and read it into something which is understandable and um, and really quite sort of exciting and complete. There is so much detail in this book. You've just mentioned, of course, a number of examples of this. Why the huge expanse? of time covered initially was that always your intention to be this ambitious or did it begin to grow and grow and grow partly it was i really wanted to try and bring to attention a lot of the parts of the fossil record that people don't really know about because for most people the fossil record is dinosaur times in sort of inverted commas maybe then the ice age and then possibly some people might have heard of the Cambrian explosion, but maybe not. And that's sort of it. It's a bit sort of patchy. Whereas there's so much out there that is different and new and not just based on the European and North American sites that have been sort of widely publicised over the last century and a half, two centuries of, sort of paleontological communication. What is of more importance to you, using other lands to understand where we could go in the future or to give the reader a sense of being embedded in the past? I think the important thing, as far as I'm concerned, is to show that there's nothing particularly special from a paleontological point of view, from a from an earth scientist, evolutionary biologist point of view, about the time we live in now. And so all of the laws that govern the Earth that we exist on now have, have existed for the last half billion years and, and more. So it's trying to, I, I guess I'd want it to engender a kind of love for the planet, really, because an excitement about the Earth and the way that it functions and has functioned and will continue to function. True. What effect did the environment you grew up in have on this fascination you have for the ancient world? Well, I moved around a, uh, a little bit as a, as a child, but I grew up really, formative years were spent in Rannoch, in the middle of the highlands of Scotland. So if you look at a map of Scotland and put a pin in the middle, you're more or less there. And that was a place where there was, um, you know, there's a 10 mile long loch and the Blackwood of Rannoch is part of the ancient Caledonian forest. It's, so it's temperate rainforest, one of the last fragments in Scotland. And so, I mean, my, my childhood from about the age of seven to 12 was running around in this kind of landscape. And, uh, you know, I'd be watching the animals and birds. And I, at that time, I was very good at, uh, at flowers and fungi as well. Although I suspect if I went back, I'd have to revise that quite heavily. Yeah, certainly you get an intense interest in the natural world if, you know, you step out going to school and suddenly, you know, three or four deer run off your front garden. There's a real of involvement in the environment around you. So I think although none of the environments that I explore in the book are direct analogues really of that place, growing up somewhere where I was sort of directly exposed to all of that and also having, you know, parents and grandparents that were very encouraging of that side of my interests, um, 
yeah, hugely influenced my relationship with the world today and therefore the, the, the approach I've taken with the book. Now, Thomas, we always ask our guests to bring an object with them that says something about their life or their writing life. You've chosen a song. Tell us about this song and the artist and why this was the object you wish to bring to us here on the Penguin Podcast. Yeah, I've gone a little bit abstract with this. Um, the song is Feel So Near by Doogie McLean. So when we moved to Rannoch, one of the first things that my parents did, my father decided he was going to get some music from a local singer. And Doogie McLean is from Dunkeld, which isn't too far away um, from Rannoch. For those that don't know who he is, he's a folk singer who is sort of in, I guess, the pantheon of like Scottish singer-songwriters that, you know, every everyone knows his song Caledonia and Feel So Near, though, is is my favourite of his and sort of always has been. It was the soundtrack really to all of our long car journeys from, from Rannoch to visit the cities or to visit our family and friends elsewhere. But it's a song which I think evokes the spirit of the book as well. It's something, it's a sort of philosophy that has lived with me well, for as long as I really remember, you know, it talks about it. It's 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 a sort of environmental pain, but it also talks about, you know, it tells us stories of things long gone, and there's the, how the distance to the past is not actually all that great, and really you can, you know, feeling so near to the to the world around you, to the environment. It's it's a it's a very hopeful song, and just a very reflective, yeah, happy uh, <laughs> song about the connection between humans and 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 the world. And that's it for this episode. Hope you've got a book or two to add to your own reading lists. Thanks to all our guests in this special episode of the Penguin Podcast. Normal service resumes in two weeks' time. And if you can't wait that long, you can find all our previous conversations wherever you're listening to this. In recent months, that includes Emmy Award-winning actor and producer Stanley Tucci, Pulitzer Prize-winning authors Elizabeth Strout and Richard Powers, and... uh, God, this chap, he used to, I think he was in politics. Barack Obama, I believe his name is. Subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode and you can leave us a review too and help get the word out. Tell your friends, their worlds will be forever changed. Let us know if there's someone you'd love us to talk to. You can find us in all the usual places. And finally, if you want to find out more about the podcast, the authors we've been talking to today and, most importantly, their books, go to penguin.co.uk slash podcasts. I'm Nihal Arthanayaka. See you next time.